the lead here, Justin, is it's my opinion right now today on January 23rd that the tipped wage issue will be the defining issue for the industry in 2024 in the way that the FAST Act was the defining issue for the industry in 2023. Okay, ready? This is it. This is the show. What's with the pineapple? A podcast from the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association. Pineapples don't grow in Michigan. No, not native to Michigan. Let me write that down. Putting a, a hospitality spin on what exactly is going on in Lansing. Shed some light on the industry specifically in Michigan. I think we're going to have some good guests. What is with the pineapple? What's with the industry? What's going on in Michigan? We can edit this if that's not right, right? <laughs> Okay, first episode of the year. Let's call it out first. We are not in the same, we are not together in the content room in our office at the moment. There is, it is Tuesday, January 23rd, and there's a ice storm, quote unquote. So you are flying solo, running the switchboard. I am zooming in, and we're going to make the best of it. Not an ice storm, not illness taking down like two thirds of our team can stop us from producing another What's With The Pineapple podcast. Happy 2024. I will not say Happy New Year. I will just say Happy 2024. It's way too into the year at this point, but this is sort of like take three. We've intended to do this podcast a couple times already. Thought about canceling today because of the ice storm and most people working from home, but we said no. The many, many, almost too many listeners demand this great content (laughs) and we're here for it. We deliver. Nice. Uh, you, know, you know who's also delivering? Any guesses? I'm going to go with Detroit Lions. Yeah, I'm going to need a little more excitement than that when you talk about it, but yes. I am trying to stay cool. I'm trying to stay calm. Two massive home wins back-to-back, things that didn't seem remotely in the realm of possible, and, and now a chance at the Super Bowl. If we can pull off a big victory in San Francisco, well, Santa Clara. I mean, they don't call them the Santa Clara 49ers, but maybe they should be because that's where the wine and cheese crowd is watching that football game. One more, one more, and we're in the big game. I can't believe how much we've been talking about it. I feel like we've played a role in the rise of, of these Detroit Lions, and we've certainly been talking about a lot of stories this week about how much the two home games have meant to really this industry specifically overall the economy in Detroit but restaurants and hotels getting a huge uplift from from the Lions home games and all the enthusiasm right even if you're not in the city for the game specifically people are going out they want to be together with other people to celebrate this once in 30 year phenomenon it's like Haley's Comet coming around again the Lions are back in the playoffs and dominating been exciting I've been very enthusiastic and involved, and I'm pretty psyched about the game coming up on Sunday. Yeah, should be a good one. I, I do want to get you on record saying that if the Lions go to the Super Bowl Monday, February 12th, will we have to come into the office? I mean, I'll still be in Vegas. I'm gonna. <laughs> uh, we're gonna remortgage the house and go. I got to be there for that Super Bowl. I mean, honestly, <laughs> this is Super Bowl what 58. It would be the first one. That the Lions yeah. would be in, ever, yeah. right? You gotta, you gotta, you gotta do what's necessary to, to support the team in that in that situation. So, yeah, we got a day of celebration. All right, you heard it here first. 
Yeah, but the economic impact, I mean, the the fact that the Lions have been having such a winning season even before the playoffs was giving a boost to Detroit's hotels and restaurants, estimating 10 to 15 million additional to the economy per home game in the regular season. And then these last two playoff games, um, I think combined, they estimate around 50 million economic benefit there. So it's been huge, which is really exciting. And this weekend, you know, fill the the restaurants in your local community to watch the game if you're not flying out to Santa Clara. There you go. I will. We'll let's get a little little bit of industry specific uptake. We are seeing restaurants with about thirty three percent to forty percent increases in revenue. Those in and around the stadium getting a huge uptake uh, in activity and sales from this. And then the the ADR, the rates that hotels have been getting in relation to these games uh, are about 40-50% higher than they normally are for this time of year. And then just the occupancy occupancy percentage, right? You're going from a January that's, I think, just sub 50% to hitting near 100% occupancy all throughout the city for these games. And so that's been great because there's not a lot of juice going on otherwise in, in in January, especially without having the auto show, at least not this January. Next January, we'll be able to uh, talk about that again. That'll be great during an otherwise slow time for the industry to have the auto show back in January. But for this January, it's been all lions kicking that upside for the industry, which has been great. It has been great. And then we'll we'll move past this topic. Um, but I do want to point our listeners back to episode number two of this podcast. Towards the very end, you and Jonathan Mays, who's from Minnesota, uh, Justin had a lot of smack to talk in that in that interview about the Lions not being able to make it to a Super Bowl. So go back and listen to that. Episode two. There was a quote there. Jonathan Mays, editor of Restaurant Business Magazine. Very nice of him to come on and do our, our, our little our little podcast here in Michigan. Uh, nice to get a national voice in there. But yeah, he is a diehard Vikings fan. And his argument that they were uh, worse off because they'd gotten so close but never actually gotten the opportunity to win a Super Bowl. And I thought that was hogwash. The comparison, I, no one's, come on. No one has suffered worse than a fan. I get that we might not know what it means to get close and lose because we've never been there. But that's the point. It's Super Bowl 58 and we've never been there. That is anguish. This is like Chicago Cubs level of of sports fan anguish. Uh, so this is you know this is pretty exciting. I, I I would love. I mean, it's all we're playing with house money at this point. I would love. I think we have the talent to get all the way across the finish line. But we'll see, and then we'll we'll get Jonathan Mays back on and uh, and and <laughs> either gloat or share in and uh, our, our our newfound uh, uh, so close mentality. Yep, I hope so. I hope so. Okay, let's move on, shall we? Let's do it. Pineapple Express, current events. There was a a report at the beginning of January that hospitality workers' wages are rising faster than high earners in most states. So in 40 states, even those that haven't raised their minimum wage beyond the the federal minimum wage of 725, recent pay jumps outpaced those of earners in each state's highest paying industry. You want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, the headline could just say, duh. I mean, anyone who's been in and around this industry has seen and experienced dramatic wage increase in the wake of the pandemic because of such a shortage of workers and the demand being there. But I'll go all the way back. 
we were seeing data all the way back to 2017 that that wage growth in this industry was outpacing the overall economy and that trend line has continued it was just exacerbated because of of covid covid and you've seen about a 32% increase between 2019 and 2023 in michigan wages in this industry that dramatically outpaces the overall uh, wage growth in michigan over that same time period and and you know operators are feeling that pinch because uh, it's harder to be profitable and and I think customers are too. There's been it's the inevitable increase in prices that that came from it that that have that now challenges traffic. These are all part of the challenges operators have been have been dealing with. But you know, I did some media on this, and I think the general public is a bit surprised. I don't think that they saw such. I, I don't think they knew that that this industry's workforce had increased its wages so dramatically, so so quickly. Um, but you know, if you're in this industry, it definitely falls back on the duh. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. It kind of seems like the the market should just dictate uh, what's needed, and it takes care of itself. Maybe Michigan has a minimum wage of ten dollars and thirty three cents, and I believe less than one percent now of Michigan's workforce is is working at that dollar figure. The market is clearly dictating terms, uh, not the regulatory structure and mandate uh, around it. So yeah, I'm I'm with you on that one. Let me write that down. Okay. Also exciting news going into 2024, the Hospitality Training Institute of Michigan, also known as the HTIM, launched classes in 18 locations around the state. Just a few weeks ago, around 400 students are currently in that program, if I'm correct. Um, And there's still open seats for the rest of the year. So a little bit of a self-plug, you could say. We did it. We were sweating bullets around here. You know, we, we, it's not often we launch a statewide training institute. Proud to have done it. A lot of logistics that go into having uh, 18 different locations, it, having in-person training across the state of Michigan. So, yeah, we were, we were a little nervous, but things went pretty smoothly. Uh, students taking classes uh, across the state, which is exciting because it's what the industry needs. It's what we've been pushing uh, that this industry needs to adapt and start thinking about more consistently and long term that that training, not just not just someone who's going to be coming in with a four year degree or even a two year degree, but that a large portion of your workforce is getting uh, some training and certification and elevating their opportunities, elevating their potential, and hopefully for you, minimizing the transients, that you keep employees longer, you mitigate those costs of having to retrain forever employees. So it's, to me, it's an important, it's an important hinge moment for the industry. And I hope it has staying power because it's, it's important. And we were excited to get it launched and more to come because we had what, over 1100 uh, applications in immediately. Those are going to be spread out over multiple different quarters of, of, of courses here, but so far so good. And I'm excited about it. Yeah, we have up to 2,000 students can get get no cost for that training in 2024. So, and we pulled some data that last year in 2023, there were 159 hotel general manager job openings and 434 restaurant general general manager job openings with a median salary of $70,000. And the skills that those job postings were were looking for are within the curriculum of the HTIM uh, hospitality business management coursework. So we're we're seeing what the industry needs and we're providing a way to upscale and train the workforce. So it's really exciting. That it is. That it is. All right. What else do you want to hit on next? We got a lot of a lot of activity, a lot of things going on. What do you want to focus on? 
Great question. So we have a couple things here. Um, do we want to talk about our population crisis again, or should we just move past it? Well, I know we've talked about it in the past, but it so fits into the state of the state address that's coming up this week, right? The governor is set to give her sixth state of the state address on Wednesday, today being Tuesday. So it may have already occurred by the time you were listening to this, but as of right now, it's 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 heading up in, in, in one day and a big focus, inevitably, it will be on the population decline, uh, the fact that Michigan is 49th out of 50 states in, in terms of population growth in recent years that are earning potential has gone from one of the top 10 states. Actually, I think we were number 13 when I graduated high school and when one of the wealthier states in in the nation to 39th now, that is a devastating drop. That means we are not having the kind of workforce that you'd like to see to to grow the economy. And for, for this industry, that is always going to be downstream of that, right? The more disposable income that Michigan residents are, ha- are going to have, the more they're going to spend on restaurants, the more they're going to have for, for travel opportunities as well. So to see us drop is, is concerning. And so I will give the governor, governor credit. She hasn't shied away from what has plagued Michigan for quite some time, and it feels more acute right now. Uh, more of a, a, a an impending crisis that really needs to be dealt with uh, while it still can be dealt with. Uh, so I think I expect to see a lot of that from her in, in the speech because all of the data points, and I think one of the things you have on here is is that U-Haul has Michigan ranked one of the worst for one-way moves, as in people leaving the state, not coming back, and and not enough of those one-way trips coming into the state. So it all fits into the same the, the same category of how are we going to write that ship? What are the investments that need to be made? But what's the type of environment overall uh, that will stimulate the growth, the kind of growth, and, and, and draw the kind of people we need uh, to grow this state? It's, it's, it's a big challenge, and I hope to see her take that head on. Yeah, I'm interested in, in what comes out of tomorrow night's uh, State of the State on the topic especially with the Growing Michigan Together Council and the recommendations they produced at the end of 2023. This is a big topic at the Detroit Policy Conference a few weeks ago. One of the individuals on that council said, I'm here to make the case that Michigan's house is on fire. So it's it's on the top of minds of many across Michigan and growing, growing the population is good for our industry as well. So yeah, I think we'll have more to discuss on the next episode. And also my dogs are barking in the background. So it's all part of the process. But yeah, I think there are no easy answers on this one. And I think that we have a, we are pretty purple state, right? We have perspectives that come across the entire political spectrum, far left to far right, and plenty in the middle in Michigan. And it's probably going to take some of the best ideas from both sides of the aisle and and people willing to have compromises on some things that they might not view as 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 critical to how we're going to grow our state but but necessary given the given the makeup this is i mean we are a swing state politically for a reason and uh, i think there's going to have to be uh, some coming to the table of both sides for some solutions and some compromising that's going to hurt but probably be in the best interest of how we are going to grow our, our state here. And so I, I look forward to it. We anticipate being part of that discussion and making sure that we think about hospitality, travel, and tourism in, in a big way in the role that it can play in the rebirth and the regrowth of the state. Well said. The last thing on the list here, Burger King, Restaurant Brands International 
believe it was last week, said that they plan to acquire their largest franchisee for $1 billion. So that's Carol's Restaurant Group, the largest franchisee of its uh, Burger King King brand. I believe that's about 1,000 restaurants that they are acquiring to remodel and then eventually refranchise out um, to smaller operators. So $1 billion, that's a big move, something... Um, we have on our radar is all the the mergers and things that will come out of our current state of economy. But what do you think that this indicates for the franchise model for restaurants going forward? It's a pretty big move in the franchise space, and it signals that the model that many used and and having mega franchisees that that have a a tremendous number of locations and getting economies of scale of that like that isn't actually the best approach. That's something that more resembles the Chick-fil-A model, which is that their operators are very hands-on and you do not get access to a franchisee, lucrative as they really are. You do not get access to uh, to one without really demonstrating that you are going to be active day in and day out inside that restaurant. And very rarely does anyone ever get more than one location, right? So that is a that is a dramatic different business model. And I think what you've seen is, is Chick-fil-A has thrived in, in, in their approach uh, on this. And this may be a tacit ad- admission that Burger King's approach with some of these mega franchisees hasn't worked the same and getting some very dedicated small franchisees who they know will be in their shop taking care of it, seeing where things might not be up to par and and dealing with them in real time is going to be the better way forward. So expensive for them to to bring all of that back in-house right now, but long-term may be the better way to go. Some might say these uh, franchisees can't have it their way, I guess. <sighs> Come on. All right. <laughs> Had to bring something into this. <laughs> Congratulations right. on, on on being the dad joke of the week. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm working hard at it. So my New Year's resolution, actually. Fahey Schultz Berzik Rhodes PLC is Michigan's premier attorneys for hospitality-related legal services. The depth and breadth of experience within their team enables them to serve as a one-stop resource for clients throughout the hospitality industry. Their diverse client portfolio includes national restaurant chains, regional restaurants, hotels, taverns, entertainment venues, golf courses, liquor stores, as well as breweries, distilleries, and wineries. They have the expertise to assist clients with corporate formation and structure, engaging new investors, assisting with local and state licensing matters, all aspects of liquor licensing and violations, real estate matters, including purchase transactions or leases, intellectual property protection, advising on and executing expansion opportunities through franchising or other growth vehicles, purchase and sale agreements, succession planning, and planning and executing exit strategies. Clients also benefit from the experience and insight of lawyers who practice across the full range of legal fields, which intersect with the hospitality industry. When day-to-day employment law issues emerge, their experienced labor and employment attorneys are there to counsel and provide strategic advice. When threatened by legal action, their litigation attorneys are prepared and ready to defend clients' interests. Their full-service approach makes their firm uniquely positioned to help hospitality clients of any size. Okay, pineapple plaudits, shall we? Let's do it. Jeff Lobdell from Michigan was named National Restaurant Association Chair for 2024. Jeff is who we know very well, of course, is the president and founder of Restaurant Partners Management, headquartered in Grand Rapids. 
He has 19 independent restaurant locations and two beachfront resorts and employs over 900 people. Uh, he served as the then Michigan Restaurant Association chairman in 2007, and he won our Distinguished Service Award in 2016, and of course is very involved day to day with us at the association. So wanted to get that shout out and congratulations to Jeff on the podcast. Yep. Shout out to Jeff. He knows we love him. He's been brought up on this podcast more than once. Very proud to have a Michigan operator running the National Restaurant Association uh, this year and something that we know means a lot to him. You know, he, he really brings it on behalf of this industry and cares beyond just operating his own restaurants. But the integrity and the success of this industry overall are just critically important to who he is as an individual. So honored to know him, happy for him. Really, really disappointed that I can't be in Phoenix next week when he officially becomes chair at the at the board meeting. So Jeff, my apologies. I am there in spirit and uh, wish you well. Also a member that has been a member since 1996 of the association, a community restaurant. That is the name of the restaurant. It opened its doors for the first time in two years after after a fire. So it's located in Zealand. And I saw an article about this, about a crowd of regulars that were waiting outside at 5.45 a.m. when they reopened earlier this month. They first opened their doors in, in the 1960s, and they were one of the few restaurants first in the Zealand area. So um, just wanted to give a shout out to that longtime member of the association. You know you're doing it right uh, when you've got a group of people waiting outside uh, at 5.45 in, in a Michigan winter to be there and excited to be there for your reunion. They are an aptly named community restaurant because the community came out to be part of that reopening, which is great. Makes me think of uh, our very own board member, Scott Lowell, and the tragic fire at his restaurant in Detroit, Traffic Jam and Snug. And I, I look forward to being one of those people there in person when, uh, when they reopen that restaurant soon. Absolutely. All right, for fork's sake, let's move into government affairs. Okay, I think what we have this week is a unique opportunity to fuse both of our in our interview uh, into for fork's sake. Uh, we know the Michigan legislature not real active while the uh, the House of Representatives is in a 54-54 tie. So while there's not going to be a whole lot going on, I think legislatively for the next couple uh, of months here, short of a, a big budget forthcoming that we will give updates on and the state of the state address that we know the governor is going to be giving soon that we talked about earlier in this podcast. Uh, we're going to bring in our guest, Franklin Coley from Align Public Strategies in a minute and go around the country and talk about all of the big themes in restaurant industry, hotel industry, regulatory concerns, and public policy issues that are threatening the industry across all of these 50 states. And it's a really, it's going to be a really thorough and interesting conversation. And so that was going to serve Emily as our for fork's sake this week. All right, let's go into it then. Franklin Coley with Align Public Strategies was on just the third episode of the podcast and joins us again today. Franklin is a partner at Align Public Strategies, having worked on scores of candidate and issue campaigns, including three presidential races. 
Franklin Coley has a deep political background. He also has experience in the public sector, having served as a presidential appointee to U.S. Labor Secretary Elaine Chao and as a staff member for U.S. Senator Mel Martinez. For the better part of the last decade, Coley has acted as a consultant to companies and associations crafting political engagement strategies, counseling on legislative and regulatory trend lines, repositioning clients relative to external considerations, and developing creative public policy alternatives. His areas of expertise are issue management, campaign management, and stakeholder engagement. Franklin is also co-host of the popular podcast, The Working Lunch. Franklin, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's what it, has it been two years? What I do to get a, get not on the call list for for two years? Come on, guys. Very few repeat guests whatsoever. We have so much demand to be on What's with the Pineapple, but Franklin, you are Justin. Justin the, the response there is your comments were so you know prescient and 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 so future looking. We didn't need to have you back for two years because you just laid it all out, and you know now we're doing a catch up. That that's the response, Justin. Just just so you know. I'll sit this one out. You can play. You can play both parts. You can play. <laughs> you can play you and me, Franklin. How first of all, how did you shake Kefauver and get on this thing solo so we can have an aggressive one-on-one -on -one conversation here today? How did? Where is Joe? Look, buddy. Some of us <laughs> need to be in the office, tracking bills, watching committee hearings, doing some strategy. Others of us get to jet set around the world, going on. You know hunting trips in Denmark, you know, whatever, whatever it may be, wherever duty calls us, Mr. Winslow. And so, yes, Mr. Kefauver is, is on the, on the ground in the, in the European Union and, and can't join this, this podcast to discuss political issues impacting the industry. A true international man of mystery. Well, uh, we are I will say this, though. He is there trying to solve the climate crisis. So we'll, we'll give him that. You know, he's touring a bio waste facility and has a delegation from the U.S. and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I actually think he should come back on and talk just about that issue one day. I know that is a, a passion project for him and sustainability as it relates to our industry is big. So we will have him on to have that conversation one day. But we are fortunate to have you back. And you're right, it has been two years. Uh, you were one of the very first guests we had on, and we appreciate that. It was great content uh, during a rapidly changing time in this industry. It was early 2022. I felt like every 20 minutes you were getting notification that a new Starbucks uh, had, had moved to start organizing. And at that point, rapidly in Michigan and all over the country, it seems to have stemmed over those two years since we were back, but but give a sense, right? Let's 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 lead off with this labor activism still prevalent, certainly in in the country, and anyone in Michigan who was uh, working in and around the auto industry certainly feels and felt that last fall when we had a a pretty aggressive UAW strike here. But what is the what is the state of labor organizing in the restaurant and and to the extent that you can share on the hotel side of the industry? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about kind of defining issues, I guess, you know, that, that's that's what we're talking about today, 2024 defining issues. I think labor organizing, labor activism is definitely up in that that top tier, definitely one of those issues we talk about. And we can put a lot of things under that umbrella. We can put the independent contractor rule, we can put joint employer, we can put captive audience bills at the state level. You know, there's a lot of you know, new rules around organizing out of the NLRB, new stuff out of the Labor Department. So there's a lot that goes into that into that bucket 
but yeah, look, it continues to be probably the best labor organizing environment in our lifetimes. Unions continue to notch victories. The Starbucks campaign itself has kind of ebbed and flowed. And, you know, I think the company is a little more in the front foot these days. We've had a lot of decertification uh, efforts in Starbucks locations and also in some of these independent coffee shops. In our last podcast on the working lunch, we had National Right to Work Foundation to come on and kind of talk about what that looks like. Feel free to go check that out. But it will continue to be, to answer your question directly, Justin, in the last two years, we've seen this spread from independent coffee shops to Starbucks. And now we have a bunch of chains that have been hit with organizing efforts. Now it's just a shop here or a shop there. But all your big guys, all your name brands have had election petitions in location. So, you know, we do still continue to see this kind of in the economy. The dynamics are such that employer uh, that employees have a lot of leverage and clout and unions and labor organizers continue to take advantage of that. And so it will be an issue for the foreseeable future. Well, let me hit the, the the headline there. Working Lunch is your go-to podcast for all things on this industry. Certainly something that I listen to pretty much every single episode to, to get up to date and, and appreciate that expertise. Why do you think that is, right? We, we were pontificating two years ago that is this going to be a fad to you? To you? I think we may have literally said two years from now, are we talking about this where 20% of the industry is now organized as opposed to 1% to 2% or will this have that ebb and flow? What do you think it is that's unique about this industry and its workforce that it didn't capture ultimately the imagination to grow inevitably? You know, I think the jury's still out on the staying power of organizing within the industry. I think that's still a question mark. I think the Starbucks campaign has been successful, but again, it's still, I don't know, it's probably less than 1% of the Starbucks, you know, system still. So, I mean, we're still talking about, you know, a small amount of restaurants and ultimately they haven't gotten a contract yet. And so I, I do think the jury is still out on kind of the, the staying power of organizing, particularly within the QSR space. If we're talking about hotel or like fine dining, I think that unions have always had some success organizing in that space. I think you will continue to see that. I think that fits their more kind of traditional model and, and kind of makes more sense to them. The one thing that was interesting, Justin, was in this, this interview last week, you know, the National Right to Work CEO was like, look, the big payoff in the QSR sector is the initiation fees. So it's $300 per new union member. And when you have 200% turnover, those initiation fees rack up over the course of a year. You know, that's not a point that I've heard made often, but maybe that changes some of the, the, the dynamics and the ROI for unions to continue to organize in kind of the, the QSR or fast casual format, you know. So we'll see. Justin, I think the jury, to answer your question, I think the jury is still out. I, I don't know how much staying power these dynamics within kind of the economy aren't going to hang around forever. And so the favorable organizing environment may not be here forever. But, you know, you've got the NLRB rewriting the rules, making it much easier 
to organize too. The CMIX decision allows for automatic representation, essentially, you know, card check for lack of a better term. So you don't even have to go through the election process anymore. So it's getting a lot easier for unions to organize too. And so we'll just have to kind of see how this continues to play out in terms of the long-term staying power. Yeah, I think I think you're 100% right. And you hit. I think you hit it on the head that this is still a transient industry, right? We spend a lot of our time talking about professionalizing this workforce and, and getting operators, especially the smaller ones who don't think operationally in large scale all the time, to recognize the, the, the rapidly changing environment and what they need to do to minimize that turnover. But there's just a large part of this industry that's transient. They like the flexibility. It's a portion in their life that where they're not ready for a full career. And it's uh, they're, maybe they're in school. Uh, maybe they're doing a couple other things. And, and the flexibility is key. And so it's harder to organize when, when you have 200% turnover. That's why it's, it's going to be it, – it seems like a long-term challenge on that side of the equation. But it – it, I will say this: It sure the hell has woken up a lot of operators to make sure that they are they are always mindful of their shops and how they are treating their employees. And I do think that that has woken a lot of people in this industry up. And operators are operating with a little more thought and and, uh, and care than maybe they were before, which is which is good all the way around. Yeah, not not necessarily a bad thing. All right, let's transition to an issue that we just can't get past here in Michigan and, and have been dealing with for a decade. That is the repeated attempts to eliminate the tip minimum wage, or we often call it the tip credit in Michigan. We've dealt with ballot proposals in 2014, in 2018, in 2022, and possibly again here in 2024. And as we've talked about in this podcast many times, there are still two pending issues before Michigan Supreme Court that could impact the the tip credit. So it is something we talk about frequently in Michigan. The threat has been real, something that is we have, as an association have been uh, focused on for a long time, but it's not just happening here anymore. Maybe back in 2014, we were we were at the tip of the spear for one fair wage in the Restaurant Opportunity Center, but they have expanded their reach and their scope. They frankly got a couple wins on the board in the last year, and 2024 seems like this issue is 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 all over the place. Give us give us an update. What's going on nationally on the attempts to eliminate the tip minimum wage? Yeah, so I think the the lead here, Justin, is. It's my opinion right now today on January 23rd that the tipped wage issue will be the defining issue for the industry in 2024 in the way that the FAST Act was a defining issue for the industry in 2023. And I'll kind of articulate that and then I'll throw in a lot of caveats as to what other issues may may rise and, and overtake the tipped wage issue. But I believe the tipped wage issue will be the defining issue because we're potentially going to have it on the ballot in three, maybe even four states in a bunch of diverse states. So we're looking at Massachusetts, you know, blue trifecta state. We're looking at Ohio, potentially a red state. You know, we're looking at Michigan and Arizona. I'd characterize those as battleground states, right? And so let's assume in a perfect world that one fair wage is successful in getting it on the ballot in all four of those states. And gets some victory, let's just say they they run the table and they win in all those states. One, that will probably be the most amount of operators that are impacted by a change to the tipped wage in, you know, the modern era, right, you know, in the, in the past few decades. And I mean, you'd have to go back to the federal legislation, probably whatever it was three or four decades ago to have that many operators at one time impacted on the issue. Um, the and And it would be in different political 
colors and and shapes in in different regions they would be successful i would also point out that in massachusetts it is basically a standalone tipped wage issue in the other states it's embedded in a minimum wage increase um, which is easier i mean you can bet embed about anything in a minimum wage increase and get it passed on the ballot minimum wage increases are extremely popular and in, in red red states and blue states and, and everywhere else but it will if it makes the Massachusetts ballot, it will stand as a standalone elimination of the tipped wage. So that could be a proving ground. I was going to say, is, what, what, what is your, how do you handicap that? Because it has always hidden itself under the idea of a broader increase in the minimum wage, which is generally pretty popular, increasingly popular across both sides of the aisle. Um, but people don't necessarily feel the same way about the tip credit, but it's very hard to explain that issue properly while you actually have someone's attention. So what do you think this issue looks like? Because we haven't seen it as a standalone. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to see what this, thing, what this issue looks like when it's the only thing being considered by voters. So I haven't seen polling or focus groups or anything uh, around that, and certainly not in Massachusetts, which obviously you would want to or you make any big declarations have some sense of that but my gut tells me that it's it's winnable and you know I, I i think it's important if it does appear in the ballot and just to back up for a sec you know michiganders are familiar with the ability for the legislature to adopt and amend that that is somewhat unique but exists in massachusetts as well so the legislature could pick this up adopt and amend they cleared the signature threshold, but not by a ton. So, you know, there could be challenges there. There could be challenges in language. Let's assume it gets to the ballot as a standalone measure. I think the industry has to go all in and fight and win. I think the industry has to demonstrate that this is a standalone measure, can lose, will, will lose. It does not have public opinion on its side, not only for the impacts in Massachusetts, but I think we need to be able to go around the country in legislative sessions in city councils and go, look, People don't want this. When it's on the ballot, they vote it down as a standalone measure. Look at the servers over here testifying. And so I think Massachusetts is important for a bunch of different reasons, but and all of these states are. But if it goes to the ballot in Massachusetts as a standalone measure, I think it's important that the industry really comes together and wins. And I think it's winnable. Well, Massachusetts Restaurant Association has Steve Clark at the helm, a very savvy veteran, understands uh, that legislature well. So I think they're in good hands. It's always a tough state to operate yeah. in on the public policy side, but but in good hands with Steve. So we're, we're very interested to see how that's going to play out uh, there as well. Well, Franklin, one one way we know this issue is still very salient in Michigan and others is a recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that has several of my board members uh, sending me the link, uh, making sure that I saw it, that I read it. My dad, not of the industry, saw it, read it, and made sure that I saw it. And it was all about why no one is is going out to eat in Washington, D.C. anymore. And a major component of that was D.C. passing elimination of the tip credit and what that has done to the industry. So we've got some evidence now of what this looks like. Why don't you explain for our listeners what happened in D.C. and, and what the impact has been so far? Well, one fair wage tried 36 times to get this <laughs> over the finish line. Approximately. In yeah, which is kind of their modus operandi, you know, historically. And I do want to talk about one fair wage, but historically they have been very sloppy and somewhat inept. And certainly in D.C. they had struggles, but they kept at it. And after a decade of 
going to the ballot and going back to the ballot and going to the ballot again. Um, they got it over the finish line. The challenge with, you know, these tip weighted elimination, one, servers don't really want it. Two, there's a bunch of unintended consequences that occur when these things are passed. And D.C. is a pretty good case study of those unintended consequences. You know, one of which is most of the restaurants in the district, the rent is tied to sales. And so when you start inflating all these numbers, you start inflating the rent. And this has created a crisis for many restaurants in the city. You know, they're having to, you know, move towards service fees to try to offset this, which also is creating a series of problems. And quite frankly, we're having, you know, predictable challenges with restaurants shutting down with servers, pay being cut, and them not being happy with the outcome. All the things that kind of were predicted, plus some other unexpected consequences that have come home to roost. In short, the whole thing has been a bad experiment uh, with a lot of negative fallout. It serves as a perfect case study of what not to do in, in your hometown. Yeah, we've had some of those exact conversations with Michigan legislators. They connect, I think, when they see in in real time what's actually happening on the ground. And if there's ever a location, and I think we've said this before, that could absorb and would be more adaptive to this type of policy change, it's D.C. where other people's money is a major component of the, the restaurant spend there, right? People on business trips, people lobbyists, frankly, right? Uh, uh, doing a lot of entertainment dinners, other people's money being spent, and therefore people are, are less concerned about that bottom line, less concerned there's, about that total. There are like. 100, 100 cocktail fundraisers every night in Washington, D.C., period, end of story. Like, uh, it, there's an endless flow of booking out, you know, restaurants for dinners and, and private parties and, and all of that. Yeah. So to have fallout in that environment, right, would would you just magnify that several times over in something that is a more traditional and pick any market you want in the state of Michigan and you will feel that impact much more dramatically. And yet still D.C. feeling it pretty bad. So uh, a good point there. Well, where do you think things is? It's, it's early. It is late January here, 2024. Uh, at the end of this year, where do you where do you see uh, this issue and its salience? Well, a lot of it is going to be determined you know, late on the ballot in in terms of, you know, how many measures make it to the ballot and then, of course, pass on the ballot. But other than that, look, the other the other big win that one fair wage is claiming coming out of the end of 2023, in addition to D.C. is Chicago, where through the legislative process, they really got this over the fir- over the finish line for the first time in a long time. Elimination of the chip credits happened on the ballot, but this was really the first time it, it kind of made it through the legislative process. Chicago Mayor Brand Johnson has been, you know, he was a U.S. Conference of Mayors last week, kind of pumping this and celebrating. Out of all the things he could be talking about, crime in Chicago or, you know, housing or, you know, he's he's spending his time and energy talking about the elimination of the tipped wage. So, you know, one fair wage has kind of professionalized a little bit over the past couple of years. They have gotten funding. They have tens of millions of dollars of funding now. They will be pursuing this issue, not only in the ballot, but in a bunch of other jurisdictions. In my mind, how the industry responds in 2024 will kind of determine the trajectory of this issue in a going forward basis. They came rearing out of Chicago, went directly to Maryland in the industry, 
smack them down in Montgomery County and in PG County and now, you know, working in at the state level. So had they come out of Chicago and won in Montgomery County and then Prince George's, I think we're having even a different conversation right now. I think in 2024, that same level of attention and focus needs to come from the industry in these key jurisdictions or, you know, one fair wage is going to continue to attract tens of millions of dollars of funding and our challenges are going to multiply all over the country dealing with this issue. So I, I think that is the challenge for the industry. I think it is the biggest challenge the industry faces in 2024. It's not the only one and we can list off some other ones quickly, but I, I think it's the biggest one. Yeah. And let's get to those in rapid fire. I think you're right. This is the seminal year for this issue if it were a normal issue, it would have gone away and the interest groups would have receded after losing time and time and time and time again. They were pushed back a dozen plus times in, in recent years and still came back, got a win in D.C. and, you're, and we're seeing the negative impact uh, and, and, and using that plus Chicago to move forward in a pretty aggressive manner in 2024. I think you're right. This is the seminal year. I, I think on this issue specifically, we that we are on the 100% on the right side of this issue, but it's going to be an expensive and, and very important year. So stay tuned. There'll be a lot more to come there. All right, let's do rapid fire real quick, because there are a lot of issues coming out on the regulatory front that are changing with this, the Biden administration. Can you just give us some quick updates on, you know, we can hit joint employer, we can hit overtime. If you want to hit on the Federal Trade Commission because service charge and surcharges are at risk right now, very interesting to the industry. I'm just going to tee you up for those and let you go. Yeah, let me let me let me hit the ones that I think have a potential to upset tipped wages, the most important issues of 2024. And and we won't say much about these, but fast act copycats, right? Like I think the industry response in 2023 completely crushed the momentum for fast act copycats. And I expect we're going to see them, but I don't expect to see a, a ton of momentum. Your 22nd kind of definition of fact act, fast act, just for those who might not understand what what, what played out in California, but just a, a quick summary. Yeah. And you kind of, I think you have models of this kind of sectoral bargaining approach in Detroit around housekeepers or home healthcare or something, but convention workers essentially so far. In, it's an industry standards board is what it's characterized as or sectoral bargaining. But basically what they do is they say, we're going to take all the legislating authority, wages, benefits, union organizing, et cetera, et cetera, training, and we're going to give it to this appointed board that will be appointed with you know union representatives, and they're going to dictate all the working conditions and terms of employment in your industry. Is crazy and as ridiculous as that sounds, it's exactly what it was. So essentially, the SEIU would set the minimum wage rate, would set the paid leave rate, would set the training requirements. They could say that you have to train your workers on the SEIU approved worker rights curriculum upon the first week of hiring. They can make that up and then they can charge you for their curriculum that they get paid for. This is the kind of stuff they could do out of a fast act board. Obviously, the authority can be as wide or as narrow as, you know, Policymakers want to make it, but but in California, it was super wide. Everything I just mentioned, plus a thousand other things we could never dream up, could be done by that board. So that, touching back to the Starbucks conversation when we started, Justin, the unions want to get in our workplace. 
and get to our workers and create a revenue stream. They're going to try to do it by changing the, the, the rules of union organizing. If they can't get there that way, they're going to try to do it through mechanisms like the FAST Act. It's just a different route to the same outcome or promised land that they're seeking to head to. So that would be my uh, that would be one that I would be watching to upset the tipped wage. I think the industry response last year has taken a lot of momentum out of that issue, though. Yeah, something we've been watching in Detroit specifically, they have these local the, these boards were enacted and allowed from a a 2018 measure that is so far limited to convention workers and also not mandatory because we have a local preemption law in Michigan. In other words, they can't actually set separate standards in the city of Detroit, at least not yet. That is a, a legislative priority of uh, at least the Senate de- Democrats right now. And so if that were to get through, now all of a sudden these uh, these these boards become compulsory, and they would impact workers in this industry. Their convention so far there is a a industry standards board in Detroit for convention workers. So if you're working at Little Caesars Arena or Ford Field, where they've been pretty busy, frankly, the last couple of weeks, uh, they that will and, impact and we, them. And if we go around the country, we can find little examples all over the place, particularly in the rideshare industry, or you, you know. So this is although this seems crazy to like most people, like there is growing precedent for these types of boards and so it will this will be a policy like concern that we're dealing with 10 years from now there's just no doubt that we're going to continue to have more energy in this space yep no doubt all right so let me throw one more at you let me throw one this is my other one that's competing and this may be a little bit off your radar and i don't know how much it resonates in michigan but access to labor so many operators if you ask them what their primary concern is getting labor in the doors you have the industry pushing in a lot of places to tweak the rules around immigration or you know youth rules around participation in the workforce and i think the the industry and other industries too have been a little aggressive in some places and like changing child labor laws, for instance. And I think the other side, the labor community is keying in on that. So you've got this pressure coming from both sides and operators. They need more workers in the workplace. Some of the efforts over the past couple of years coming out of COVID to change labor laws around, you know, 18 year olds or younger serving alcohol, for instance, or these different rules, you're starting to see enforcement agencies also really targeting the restaurant sector around these rules. And so I think it's a reputational issue. I understand the operator pressure and I there can be instances where getting youth in a workplace and that youth is not going to go the traditional education path. This could be the best thing that ever happens to them in their lifetime to find a career in an industry that that they want to be in. At the same time, you know, it, it the argument can be made, and certainly there, are, if if an operator is not meeting that mandate to to help employees and is being a bad employer, certainly that that can open up to hey, you know, you're just pulling people out of high school to give them dead end jobs, right? And so that's the flip side of this coin, and so. That's another issue that I think we'll we'll see play out in in 2024 that may not be on on people's radars. Nope, good point. Uh, 2022, the legislature here changed server laws to go from 18 to 17, and it was a big deal at the time, uh, but really in need for shortages, especially northern Michigan, where they just didn't have the workforce uh, to get that done. But there's been been some pushback. It can be a great great thing, but 
it's becoming a focus of the labor community. It's becoming a focus of the Biden administration and the federal labor department. I expect state labor departments going to be looking at it as well, and they're going to be headhunting in this. So, you know, you need to be mindful of that as an operator. Yep, true, true point. All right, anything you want to hit on joint employer or overtime uh, at this point, or is that, you want to save that for another? That in the same bucket. Yep. Wages, paid leave union organizing. You're going to have a lot of activity at the federal level. It's going to trickle down to the state level. You're going to have new overtime rules, and you're going to continue to have conversation around paid leave. We have a bipartisan paid leave bill in Congress. So we're just going to continue more of the same in that, but it's going to continue to be an issue for us. Yeah. Paid paid family leave feels like something that is really becoming a, a purple issue that's getting support on both sides. Big when the governor made what what seemed almost like a presidential announcement speech here in Michigan uh, last fall about what she wanted her fall agenda to be. It was centered around family medical leave, something akin to the Minnesota plan. And so that's something that we're watching pretty closely here. But you're right. That is, that is an issue whose time is no longer a partisan one and one that this industry is going to have to reckon with. Yep. All right. I want to get you out on this. You, Franklin Coley, are a political junkie. Today is, by the time people listen to this, we'll have already come and gone. These, these comments may be irrelevant by then, but today is the New Hampshire primary. It, the Republican primary barely feels like a primary at this point, and the Democratic primary one should be maybe more interesting, frankly, in New Hampshire than the Republican one. But any forecasting as to what you foresee for the rest of this year on the political front? Man, that's that is, yeah. It's loaded. Nobody does that. Nobody does that anymore. Winslow. Um, <laughs> let me get yeah, you out. No. Let me get you out of here on this forty-five minute response question. Yeah, yeah. I did, look if if Trump clears fifty percent tonight and wins commandingly in New Hampshire, then yeah, we're Trump Biden. Let's go. If Haley wins tonight, and I think she can, you know, she's in striking distance. But I think it's probably hard to poll with independents and Democrats and whatever. She's got a ton of good press. It's like one media market, right? There's like one ABC affiliate that dominates and she's been all over it. So I don't know if she pulls out a win, then, you know, maybe this thing goes on, goes on longer. But look, man, we are in the era of unprecedented. We have, you know, you got to go back 100 years to find a former president, you know, running again, you know, you know, we've never had anyone under indictment running. You know, you, you just keep going on and on and on and on. There's unprecedented on top of unprecedented on top of unprecedented. So, you know, all the forecasting is based on quote unquote priors, right? Based off prior elections, which we have very few for election, a presidential election contest, and none <laughs> ever with all of this. So, you know, I think it's a bunch of question marks and how all this is going to play out. I'm going to I'm going to bring it in for a landing, though. We know in a presidential year that partisan politics will be the center of gravity that we know for certain. And we do know and we can expect that some of our issues will get pulled into that partisan food fight. And I think, you know, for for operators and for the industry, that's the thing to watch for is which of our issues potentially get pulled into this this partisan back and forth in an election year. Uh, that opens us up to reputational challenges and and potentially you know bad political outcomes. So when you're when you're not enjoying it for the pure theater or engaged because the future of our country is at stake, you should be watching it to see which of our business model issues get sucked into the vortex. Good way to bring that home. You landed that plane, brought the industry right back into it. 
did not. I will not even hold you to any uh, hard takes on this one, one way or the other. But yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting year, and whether a viable third party gets in, uh, if the two candidates are the candidates that we anticipate them to be, usually yeah. usually a throwaway, but maybe a little bit different in 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 this year. So, going to be a fascinating year, of course. With this industry, will be. Maybe not the center of it, but you're right. I think we're going to be added to the mix of, of, of this discussion, and so we'll be here for it. All right, on that, Franklin Coley, thank you for the time. I appreciate it as always. Uh, listeners, make sure you are listening, tuning in to Working Lunch, a fantastic podcast on the industry. And Franklin, thanks for, again, being a repeat guest on What's With the Pineapple. Happy to join. Look forward to coming back in two years. Mm-hmm.